In just a few short weeks, Anthology Together is bringing you the best of ed tech at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin Resort in Orlando, Florida. Join the global education community to hear about what's next in the future of learning, get a first-hand look at the latest innovations, and discover new insights to help both your institution and students achieve their goals. The future of learning is here, and there's no better place to see it than at Anthology Together 2022. The event kicks off on July 11th, so register today at www.anthology.com together. Fierce Education targets higher education leaders, administrators, and faculty, and those driving technology adoption decisions in this new blended learning world. Go to www.fierceeducation.com for all the latest news, tips, and successful case studies of what higher education institutions are doing to better student engagement, ensure equal access, and improve the assessment process. That's www.fierceeducation.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Ed Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. As you may have recently seen, if you follow us on LinkedIn, I hope you do follow us on LinkedIn. And if you don't, you should follow us on LinkedIn. The Ed Up Experience podcast has passed 150,000 downloads in about 450 episodes of this podcast. Um, pretty incredible. Uh, we, we congratulations just, and tremendous. Thank you, Vistas. I was going to introduce you, but you can congratulate me if you want now. Congrats. Vist well done. Everybody, my, my co-host today, Dr. Vistas Karbari. You know him because he's been on before. He's the professor of mechanical and aerospace engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. And uh, that's just a little job, aerospace and mechanical engineering. Anybody just can do a bit it, of right? fun. Yeah, anybody can do that. Uh, Vistas, sure. thank you. For even your... you could. Even even I could, if, of course, my my last uh, career was an aerospace engineer. Um, yeah, that's there, there's likely things in life, and that is not one of them. This asp, I, I have to be honest. With you. Um, but uh, thank you for your congratulations. We're so happy to be able to pass the 150,000. We've been working really hard over. We're we're almost two and a half years old at this podcast. We've done 450 episodes. 150,000 downloads. It's been a crazy ride with lots of great partners. One of the most unique and fun things about this podcast over the last, let's call it 18 months, has been co-hosts like yourself, Vistas, who come on. You are doing the hard work of higher education, and we get to talk to amazing leaders together. Um, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for coming along for the ride. It's a pleasure, and it's absolutely fascinating hearing all the wonderful work that's being done by higher ed leaders all around the world. Speak, you know what it's like, I almost paid you for that segue, Vistas, but I, I have to be honest. All around the world being the key phrase in there. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very distinguished guest with us today. He is the Secretary General of the International Association of University Presidents, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fernando Galvan. Fernando, how are you? Nice to meet you. And so it's of a course, pleasure to be with you. Yes, and of course, I forgot to mention, you're also a, um, a professor of English at uh, the University of Alcala in Spain, right? That's it, yes. The University of all Alcala right. is in Madrid in Spain. Very nice. So, yeah, all around the world. By the way, and I don't know if you know this, Fernando, I'm sure you do know this. I think you have seven honorary doctoral degrees. Is that humanly <laughs> possible? 
Yes, that's true. That's true. That's true. But my question is, how is this humanly possible? I've never, I mean, did you, you know, I, I don't even know how to ask the question. I mean, how is this possible? Just you're doing work all over the world. And it's just these colleges and universities are so um, honored to have you that they're bestowing these doctoral degrees upon you. And what do I need to do? Uh, would be the second part of this question, Fernando, to get seven <laughs> honorary doctoral degrees. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I really feel honored to, to have received all, the, I mean, these uh, doctorates, these honorary doctorates. And, and the reason is basically that, uh, um, as you were saying, uh, well, um, I have many friends all over the world. So many colleagues in, in Europe, in Asia, in, in South America, in Central America. And, and those are basically the areas uh, uh, where universities uh, have um, honored me with those doctorates. So it's part of what I've been doing uh, for nearly 40 years now. So <laughs> nothing yeah. extraordinary in that. I think that's part of my job. I feel, like you've, I feel like you avoided the second part of my question, which is, how do I then? No, no, no I won't. I won't uh, go there. Well, you, maybe you I have can to go advise there. me. Uh, What's that? Is, study just... either with Dr. Galvan or with me. We'll be glad to take you as a PhD student, but you're going to have to work really hard. Yes. <laughs> well, I've got one doctorate. If I'm going to get another one, it's going to be an honorary one. This is <laughs> so. Fernando, talk, talk to us about the Inter, uh, International Association of Univers University Presidents and your role as Secretary General. Let's uh, say it like somebody is on this podcast that's never heard of IAUP. What do you do and how do you do it? Well, the International Association of University Presidents uh, was founded in, in Oxford in 1965. So we are nearly. Um, 60 years old now. And well, it's an association, as the uh, name indicates, of university presidents uh, from all uh, the countries in the world. So we have uh, university, university presidents or former university presidents, because once you become a member of the association, you can go on even after you have left the job. And uh, so we have uh, university presidents from Asia, I mean, China, Japan, Korea. Uh, of course, from the United States, from uh, Latin America, from Europe, fewer from Europe, because there is also very strong European association of, of uh, university uh, presidents in Europe. Uh, and also a few from Africa. We have very few from Africa, but we also have uh, university presidents from Africa, the Middle East. Uh, so it covers all, I mean, uh, all over the world. And uh, what, what we do uh, basically is to um, meet uh, twice a year in different regions of the world and uh, hold meetings uh, basically uh, for the expansion and of course the improvement of what uh, university presidents need to lead their universities. Uh, so for instance, to give you an idea of the things we have just recently done last week in Mexico City, uh, it was, um, um, seminar for leadership, for university leadership, which was uh, a focus and was addressed particularly to young or to new uh, presidents or those who are, um, I mean, preparing to become presidents of their universities. So, you know, uh, being president of university is a very serious job and, uh, and I mean, and you have to be well prepared if you want to do a good job. And so that requires, uh, I mean, that people with experience can help you. And uh, so we organize seminars 
every couple of years uh, for this purpose. And we mentor those uh, presidents. We also do uh, some sort of follow-up if they need it after they have done the uh, seminar. So that's one thing we do. And every three years, we have a triennial conference where and hundreds of uh, university presidents from all over the world come and share, uh, I mean, our worries and what we are doing and the challenges we, we are facing. Uh, so we had one last year, and that was for the first time, as you may imagine, online. Uh, but uh, it was quite successful in the sense that uh, people, I mean, it was more than 400 people who joined us for, for the conference last year. So, well, this is basically what we are doing. But of course, we, I, I can give you further details if necessary. Well, you know, uh, uh, so many questions. With the first one being... If you can, what's been the difference as you prepare young university presidents? And of course, we're talking about young in the time they might have been in the role. Um, what's some of the differentiating factors for those presidents now versus, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago with uh, the work of training a university president or helping to prepare them? What are the attributes or topics that are preparing them for the future? Well, one thing that I think uh, um, everybody can easily understand is technology. So uh, if you think of 10 years ago, uh, universities didn't use technology as we are using it today and as we be using it tomorrow. I mean, in the next few years, technology is a must for, for universities. And, and so university presidents, they, they do not belong to engineering, to technology, uh, to those fields like myself. Uh, I am in humanities need some sort of training so that uh, the experts tell you what uh, can be done, what will be done in the future, this sort of thing. But there are so many other things that uh, I mean, university studies have changed in, in the last few years. Think, for instance, that the idea that the universities for young people, I mean, people in the range of, let's say, 18 to 24, 25 years old. Uh, so that is the traditional uh, student at the university. But that is no longer so, or it will not be uh, like that in, in the next few years, uh, because universities need to adapt uh, to what is happening in the world and the, the need for lifelong learning. So uh, there are many people who have now their jobs, but who may lose their jobs in two, three years, in the sense that there are many things now that uh, machines can do, and so there will be possibly people who don't need, or, or, or let's say, uh, business who don't need people and they will be uh, replaced by, by machines. And those people need to have a job and need to adapt right. to the circumstances of the labor market. And so those people need to be trained and uh, the universities have the knowledge, the competences to do that. And so universities have to adapt to that. So uh, presidents must know something about lifelong learning how to plan it, how to design uh, different programs for that. Um, uh, so that's one thing. But of course, there are many other issues. Uh, uh, in many places, uh, in many uh, places in the world, uh, we, we need, our universities need to be more socially responsible, so to offer more inclusion. Uh, and when I say inclusion, I don't mean only people with uh, lower income. Uh, uh, mean coming from lower income families, but also 
people uh, from different races, indigenous peoples, uh, women, etc. So if you think of, I mean, uh, the case of Afghanistan, for instance, if you think women are not allowed uh, to, to, to get into university, etc. So there are so many challenges in different parts of the world. And uh, I mentioned technology, I've mentioned pedagogy in, in that sense of life learning. Uh, inclusion is certainly one of them. And uh, uh, well, more um, uh, relations with society and with industry in some areas. So universities have to serve uh, the community, the local community or regional community in which they are located, but they also have to look uh, at the, the global world. So this is something that we, we use the term uh, global, uh, being global, certainly, because we cannot uh, mean restrict ourselves uh, uh, locally, but we also need to serve the community and the community demands that the university um, uh, gives a service. Uh, and so all these things are relatively new. So uh, they, they were there in the background perhaps, but they were not uh, in, uh, I mean, so demanding as they are now, I mean, uh, I, I say 10 years or even five years ago. And of course, they will be more and more demanding uh, in the next five, 10 years. Uh, so notice that the um, uh, World Economic Forum uh, published a report uh, uh, two years ago in the year 2020 on the future of jobs. And, and that report said that about 85 million jobs uh, uh, may be displaced by a shift in the, in the division of labor between humans and machines. And Yikes. 97 uh, million new roles may emerge uh, as a consequence of that. And so people need to be adapted to that. We, we don't know exactly which those new roles will be, as you can imagine. Uh, think of, I mean, so many technological changes that have happened in the last uh, five, 10 years. I mean, when we didn't have, uh, um, I mean, the, the cellular phones or, or, or cellulars didn't work as they work today. Uh, how will they work in five years or in 10 years? Who knows? And so we need, universities need to adapt to all those changes and be more flexible. And so this is something the, um, uh, people at the top, on the top of at the top of the university, the presidents and their teams uh, must know something about and prepare for that. To answer those questions, of course, I go to somebody that is all involved in mechanical engineering. We push the limits of science and technology. Dr. Vistas Carbari, tell us the answers to all of those things about technology, where, where it's going. I mean, you're not in aerospace engineering for nothing, right? I wish I could, but let me sort of Change the conversation a little bit, Dr. Galvan. You are a professor of English. You served as the rector and president of the University of Alcala. You are now the secretary general of a world organization. What drives you down this path? What's your personal story that makes you so uh, passionate about uh, say, what you're doing and about the future? Um, well, I've been working at the university all my life. So <laughs> I came to the university as a student. I got involved in students' uh, life at the university level. Uh, and then I became um, an assistant, a lecturer, a professor. And, and finally, I became a president of, of the university. 
So, well, uh, this is my life. That, I mean, this is the interest that I have in life. And so that, that's why I feel so concerned. And when, um, I'm, I mean, my colleagues uh, elected me as secretary general of this organization, to which I belonged when uh, I was uh, president of the University of Alcala. So I feel honored and I feel that it was also my duty as part of what I've been doing uh, in more than 40 years. So in one or another role. So of course, depending on the circumstances and on the time. And so uh, in, in that sense, I am very, very um, concerned and, and interested in what universities are doing, can do, and so in helping uh, those who will lead the universities of the future. Amazing so speech that you gave. You talked simultaneously about recovery and transformation, two words that generally are not brought together, they're separate. Um, that seems to be a very interesting and a very timely topic. Can you say a little bit about why universities need to recover and transform simultaneously looking forward rather than going back to the old normal? Well, we need to recover because I think there are uh, values. Um, at, at the university, uh, which um, we need to take back again. So, and uh, the, the values of humanities, particularly, uh, are um, um, uh, included in, in that aspect. But, but then uh, we, we cannot simply recover and say, we'll get back uh, to normal and, and we'll be happy doing what we have been doing uh, for a number of years, even centuries. So that would be even absurd, uh, because we know that the world is changing, it's changing very quickly. Uh, and uh, I mean, the, 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 I, I, I like to repeat a sentence that uh, uh, president of the university of Southern New Hampshire University, Paul LeBlanc uh, said in our uh, triennial conference last year when, when we met uh, in 2021, he said that, uh, students uh, feel more and more every day that uh, what we are offering them at the university is becoming irrelevant. Irrelevant because they do not feel concerned with some of the things that we teach them and that we, they need something different. So in that sense, uh, when I say we need to recover, yes, we need certainly to recover and to maintain some of the traditional values of the university. But at the same time, we need to adapt to be flexible. If we do not adapt to the new circumstances, uh, to the demands of society, to the demands that those students have when they come to the university, they, they, they won't come, as simple as that. So they, they, will, they, they will not find that a university degree offers them something that they need. And so the universities must be aware of that, uh, uh, must be absolutely conscious that the, the flexibility is the first issue. And so that, that adaptation to the circumstances, adaptation to uh, the demands of society is, is what we need now. And so, so that's why uh, that combination, in my view, is uh, absolutely necessary in order to I mean, for the institution to survive, but not only to survive, but also to, to flourish. And if you think about this, the history of the university from the Middle Ages to our times, this is what we see. So the uh, medieval university is not the 19th century um, university when I mean, the model of the Humboldt University 
uh, with a research university. As a development of what happened in the Enlightenment period in the 18th century was. And so the university is an institution that has been uh, with us for centuries, uh, but with a constant adaptation, being flexible, and so answering, responding to the demands of society, the needs that society has uh, at any time. Fierce Education is the place where higher education leaders, administrators, and faculty, and those driving technology adoption decisions in education can access proven methods and best practices as they rethink pedagogy and business models in the new blended learning world. Through its website, www.fierceeducation.com, virtual events and newsletters, Fierce Education focuses on rethinking higher education in a blended learning world. Fierce Education's key tenants are to use technology for teaching better and reaching learners everywhere, addressing business model changes required to move forward, and workforce preparation for adult learners who are out to reskill. That's www.fierceeducation.com. So much there, and you're so you're so right. Let me let me just ask one quick follow up because, you know, um, we, we you were talking about the value and shout out to Paula Blank. Of course, uh, he was episode 400 of this podcast um, when we interviewed him. Um, he, he and many others talk about and we've asked every president that's come on this podcast or or um, higher ed administrator CEOs, the value what's the value of higher education these days, because there's a big gap in what we think, I'd say we higher education thinks value is and what the consumer is sometimes telling us consumer or student, whatever you say, is telling us about the value of higher education. And then I hear you words, sorry, I'm hitting my microphone guys, if you're the springs. Um, but uh, you talk about uh, adapt, uh, adaptability, transformation, um, speed, you know, pivoting. And it's the, the words that that people would not use to describe the higher ed governance models. Like in higher education, our entire model of movement and decision-making is one that's mired in molasses sometimes, in, in, in slowness, versus a technology company or a business that says, here's what the consumer is telling us, we're gonna spit out a product tomorrow, we're gonna update our business model, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Because of that history that you're talking about, the whole decision-making and execution model of higher education is really backwards. Do you see that globally? Is it just the U.S.? You know, and am I totally off base when I say that? I think when, I mean, the basic uh, value of university is the production of knowledge. And uh, this is something basic to all of us. So knowledge in all fields. So if you think of uh, how far medicine, for instance, and as well as technology. We have already mentioned technology, but take another field, take that of science and uh, I mean health sciences particularly. So I, I think people can understand that very easily. So uh, where and how is knowledge uh, produced? As is innovation made in those fields? At the university. So it is basically at the university. Of course, not at the university as an ivory tower where the scientists are there uh, secluded, so to speak. No, no, it's the university with society, with, if we are talking about uh, medicine, of course, with pharmaceutical industry as well, uh, because we are trying to uh, heal people, uh, uh, try to improve health uh, in, in, in society. 
And this is where knowledge is. So that's research. That's why it's so, it's so important that universities are not merely colleges to train students to get a job. So that is part of what universities must do, of course. This is what many colleges do, naturally. But we cannot uh, forget that the, also uh, a very important mission of the university is to produce knowledge and to innovate, to do science research. And so that is a basic value of the institution. This is something we have, uh, um, I mean, we, we need today, we need it in the past and that we'll need in the future. So one of the permanent uh, needs of the university is the production of knowledge. Uh, but we cannot produce knowledge in the same way as we did in the 19th century or in the 20th century. Uh, and that's why I talk about adaptation and flexibility and changes and more rapport with society and with societal uh, needs. So that's why it's so important. Uh, but certainly the production of knowledge, the university is the institution which is better prepared to do that. 100%. That was uh, the crowd agreeing. Vistasp, over to you, because I, I do what I do, which is cut, cut people off, apparently. So I cut oh, you off. Okay. The so, Dr. Galvan, today the world is smaller, and yet there's more friction all over the world. It doesn't matter which part of the globe we look at. What role do you think that universities, especially from your vantage point as Secretary General, should universities be playing in order to bring the world closer together, not just because of technology, but also because of society. Well, that, that means internationalization, probably that's what, if that, that is what you mean. So that uh, the, the, this is something that we have learned during the pandemic uh, to even to improve, we could say. We understood internationalization uh, before uh, COVID-19 as um, mobility of students and uh, also of course staff and uh, faculty uh, from one university to another, from one country to another. Uh, but we learned during the pandemic and even now in the post-pandemic that we can have also uh, other models of internationalization. Uh, now that the, the expression is internalization at home. So what does it mean? Well, simply that without the need of moving around the world, uh, students and faculty can exchange experiences from one country to another, from one university to another. And how to do that? And if the question is how to do that, the answer would be through alliances. So, and that is the answer to your question. So uh, that the world is becoming smaller, but also uh, more complex. And, and we need to have um, our allies uh, in this country and in the other country and share that knowledge with the knowledge of our own faculty, our, our own students, and so that our students learn from others in the world. So in that sense, uh, I mean, that's something that the university has been from its uh, very beginning. Uh, so if you, we think of the medieval university, again, to give the example, students traveled from Paris to Bologna, uh, and, and faculty did the same. That, 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 they were the first two universities in Europe at the time. And yeah, talking about uh, the end of the 11th, the 12th centuries. Uh, but today, internationalization is absolutely global. 
And uh, now, uh, using uh, the uh, technology and after the experience of the pandemic, uh, we know much better how to do that. Uh, there is a very interesting experience in European universities, if you allow me to use this example, as I am in Europe, uh, which started just three, four years ago. Uh, it, it was uh, I mean, moved initially by uh, President Macron uh, from France, and, and that is the uh, European University Initiative. This is uh, the, 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 how it is called. And uh, it, it is basically that uh, uh, from five to nine universities from different countries uh, in Europe, not necessarily in the, in the European Union, but also outside the European Union, uh, but what is known as the European higher education area, uh, come together and, and uh, get an alliance in order to offer um, common degrees, um, uh, doing research together, uh, innovating and having alliances as well with industry, business, etc. together. And uh, well, uh, that experience is starting, is, as, as I said, uh, we, we, we have now about, uh, I think it's 41, 42 alliances working probably um, about 20 more uh, will uh, develop uh, during this year in, in uh, 2022. And so that covers around 400, even perhaps near or nearly uh, 500 universities in Europe, but uh, trying to cope with the diversity of Europe. So uh, this means different languages, different uh, histories uh, and cultures. Uh, so. An, an alliance, for instance, with the university from Hungary, another from Serbia, uh, and I'm um, making reference to not necessarily countries in the European Union, as I said, another in Sweden, another in Spain or Portugal or France, Germany. So imagine what that means in terms of enriching the training of our students and our researchers and our faculties. Uh, and this is the, the way um, the, 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 the world is becoming stronger through their universities. In the case of uh, Europe, of course, that also reinforces the sense of European identity, which is uh, crucial. And uh, I mean, particularly in, in the times we are living now with the war in Ukraine. Uh, so th that is uh, uh, how we can do that and how universities can perform a role in, in developing that identity. Got another one, you got a follow up to that? Vistasper, you want me to? Please go ahead. Well, I was gonna ask, cause it, you know, you're, we're talking about advancing and we're talking about change. And you know, our colleague, uh, Dr. Francisco Marmaleja was on, I, I captured him in his hotel um, lobby. And we, we did an episode recently and he was talking, uh, I don't know if he was, um, Francisco's uh, super nice, so I'm not sure if he was annoyed or frustrated, but he indicated that there are just a number of universities that are retroceding, just going backwards right now, that we're all looking to the future, but the actions that they're taking or not taking right now, based on, you know, a loss of enrollment or loss of focus or, or maybe just falling back into some antiquated practices doesn't have many universities as many as he thought would be innovating and moving forward his point on the podcast was there's just you can't lose sight of the future and we have universities right now that are losing sight 
when you pull your presidents together, is that a main focus or do, is, it, is it coming up that people are getting comfortable again and not moving forward and falling back into old practices? Well, that has to do with the diversity of the world as well. Uh, so um, universities are very different um, um, in one country, in one continent and in another. So you, you, you cannot really expect uh, to get the same results or the same um, uh, outcomes uh, from a university uh, with a restricted budget, uh, which is a public university, for instance, in a, uh, in a country which is uh, a developing country, for instance, from, I mean, compare that with a university in a fully developed country uh, with a very reasonable budget and uh, with their students paying uh, high fees for their tuition. So, uh, I mean, universities which have different budgets, I mean, you cannot expect that they succeed in the same way. So all that they can innovate uh, accordingly. Uh, so that's a very difficult issue. And, uh, um, and of course, the temptation to get back or to go on doing the same if you don't have the resources is absolutely logical. So what else can you do? I mean, uh, technology costs a lot, of, a lot of money. And if you don't have industry next to you, which can help you, or if you cannot, uh, mean you, you don't, you are not successful in fundraising, or your government, if you are a public institution, uh, does not provide uh, enough uh, for the uh, sustainability of your institution, so those are issues that every president, uh, depending on uh, which kind of university uh, they are chairing, uh, have in their minds or must have in their minds. And the same happens with uh, private institutions. So depending on the country, so students pay high fees or no fees at all in some places or very low fees. And uh, the pandemic, for instance, uh, uh, has affected severely uh, some private institutions worldwide to the extent that some of them have even gone bankrupt. And uh, so that has not happened with public institutions generally, but uh, that also very much depends on the country. So when I talk about a, a public institution, it's not the same as a public institution in the United States, for instance, uh, a state uh, um, a university, uh, how much does a university get from the state for its budget? In some places, it's 20%. In some other places, even less. In Europe, it's normally 80% of its budget. And so the pandemic has not affected an institution which gets 80% of its budget from uh, uh, public money, from, from the government, uh, as another university which uh, must survive with only 15 or 20% of its budget coming from public sources. So uh, that's why it's so difficult. I mean, well, I cannot give you a simple answer. Uh, so, it, and what we have done, for instance, in this seminar that we, we had uh, last week in Mexico City, uh, was basically make our uh, participants, the future or the new presidents, aware mm -hmm of those difficulties. And we also ask them as a sort of exercise and to train them to prepare a 
very uh, short project uh, of what they would like to do in their own institutions, explaining their challenges, their difficulties. And uh, I mean, the speakers that, I mean, who, who were there to, to help them and mentoring them were simply guiding them uh, through our experience uh, about what they can do uh, in order to improve uh, their training and improve, of course, uh, their, their work uh, at their universities. But the answer, and coinciding, of course, with what Marmolejo has also said, is uh, it's, it's not a simple answer at all. This is what I mean. So basically what I hear you saying is comparing universities is like comparing uh, you and I, Fernando, and our, our knowledge of English literature. Some days I'm better, and some days you're better, or comparing me and Vistas, where I'm just a better aerospace engineer on some days, and some days he's better. I mean, that's the way, what I'm saying. Remind me not say. to fly a plane that you designed. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Vestas, I, I heard you say, <laughs> I've been waiting for this moment here, just for the record, because I heard you say, as a professor of, of, of years of mechanical and aerospace engineering, lead with, Fernando, the world's getting smaller. And I thought, man, there's just a lot of insight in your class, you know? <laughs> <laughs> all right all right all right enough of that uh, over to you Vistas. so fernando there's there's a lot of discussion at least in the united states about the future of universities because there's so much knowledge that is now available on the web uh we've almost reached the stage where someone can click and you can get information i'm not going to call that knowledge because it hasn't been validated it hasn't been vetted but in that situation, how do you see the university evolving, especially uh, with the conversation going on in the US, not just about information on the web, but also credentials and certificates as opposed to degrees? Mm. Well, of course, a lot of information is on the web, but um, you, you need to train uh, people, uh, your students, to interpret that information to discriminate, uh, because sometimes the information is not correct. Uh, sometimes it's uh, absolutely biased. Uh, sometimes it corresponds. I mean, well, you, you know. Uh, so and copying and pasting. Is yeah, not copying and pasting from from Google searches is not a good strategy for thesis papers, right? Uh, copying That's and it. pasting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the the university still has a role to play in uh, because educating uh, students at the university means to help them. Uh, discriminate to 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 make them better citizens in many in many uh, mean uh, meanings uh, and one of them is certainly uh, to be able to know what is right and what uh, what is wrong I mean and to make them better citizens not to fall into uh, fake news and not to believe everything that is being said by the media and and social media particularly etc. So. Um, I think you also mentioned something else that I now forgot. I'm sorry. So in the United States, we talk a lot about the need or the desire, if you will, on some people's part to move away from degrees to shorter term credentials and certificates. Yes. How does that fit in with what's going on around the world? Yes, I mean, that, that has to do with uh, what I said um, um, at the beginning about lifelong learning, particularly, uh, so that uh, there are many people who got their degrees uh, 10, 20, 30 years ago who have their good jobs and who are happy with their lives. Vistap Scott, he, he got his 40 years ago. So there's 
Kravis. Don, you see the gray hair on me? Okay. Oh, I can okay. see it. It's the only thing that shows up in the in the camera. No. Okay. <laughs> even 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 forty years ago, uh, a bat who now and in uh, in the very near future they will need to update their knowledge, their training, and so they need either to go to university or to industry. So that, of course, very much depends on the fields. Uh, but the university certainly has the knowledge and uh, uh, has the uh, capacity to offer that. And that can be done through micro uh, uh, credentials or micro diplomas. So small courses, not necessarily a whole academic year or not necessarily a whole semester or um, in some cases a whole semester, but uh, having classes in, in the weekends or uh, Friday afternoon, etc., and also, of course, associated with online teaching. So there are now, uh, I mean, this diversity uh, of uh, models of teaching, the hybrid model that we have learned to use during the uh, pandemic is so useful. And many universities are really planning some uh, credentials in some very specific fields uh, through hybrid teaching. So students will come uh, Friday afternoons, uh, Saturday mornings, do the rest of the week on, uh, on online, etc., and will update their knowledge. That's something that they need uh, to, to keep their jobs or to improve uh, in their jobs, etc. So that is uh, something that is being done, I think, all over the world, uh, not only in the United States. So uh, Europe and uh, certainly Asia uh, is doing that and is planning to do that in the near future. Fernando, who's just off the off the top of your head? Who's what country in your mind's moving really fast with higher ed? Who is there a country just off the top of your head that's really innovating and moving quickly and adapting and and, and doing all the things that you mentioned, or do you not want to call anybody out? Well, well certainly the United States, uh, but also um, uh, some countries in Europe as well. Uh, the, 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 there are countries uh, where innovation, uh, I, I'm thinking, for instance, of the Scandinavian universities, as an example, or universities in the Netherlands as well, or in Germany. Well, that's a, a very interesting experience now in the United Kingdom. A couple of months ago, um, in, a new law was passed, and now it's an act of parliament after a year of discussing in, in parliament, uh, which um, I mean, introduces a, a, a very interesting um, um, a very interesting feature uh, in making uh, colleges um, offer um, um, degrees that are necessary in the local community in which they are located. Uh, and so that is, that is called the uh, post, uh, is Skills and Post-16 uh, uh, Education Act. Um, and, and, and that is an example of innovation so that uh, colleges are no longer uh, or can no longer offer exclusively the academic, the traditional academic option. Because if they do so, then the authority, the administrative authority uh, in the region, in the county, uh, uh, can intervene and, um, I mean, lead uh, uh, the offer so that 
people in the community, students in the community uh, can have a, a, a more diverse uh, range of options. So that is an example of innovation uh, in the line that we were discussing of the credentials as well. So yes, um, possibly in the Western world, um, that the, yeah. the answer would be that in the Western world, many universities are, are innovating uh, very, very strongly. And I believe that in the next 10 years, uh, we'll see some of those changes uh, really taking place. Vistas, last questions for Fernando before we close it out. So Dr. Galvan, as you know, uh, the EdUp experience has a range of people who listen to it not just academic leaders, but everyone involved in education, from the tech world to those who teach, to those who are actually attending. What message would you want to send them? And so both personally and as the Secretary General, what message would you send through this means? Well, um, students and faculty and staff uh, are certainly uh, the university. Uh, and uh, what, what we do in, in uh, IUP is to offer uh, to all these sectors uh, options uh, to uh, help their presidents, to work with their presidents. Uh, for instance, we have started an initiative uh, addressed to students uh, in order to improve their abilities uh, to work with industry so that they can present projects uh, in different areas, not necessarily in engineering, but also in other areas, health, uh, science, of course, but also social sciences and humanities, so that they can uh, develop projects that could be uh, applied in society. And this is something for students to do, so that they uh, I mean, get conscious uh, of what they can do and how they can innovate uh, when they are being trained at the university. And of course, that is also part of what faculty uh, is uh, invited to do uh, in order to help the students uh, uh, in, in those projects. Uh, so that's something uh, that is uh, part of the community. So it's not only for the presidents to do. The presidents are chairing, are leading the institution, uh, must uh, innovate themselves, of course, because they must set an example to the rest of the community, but uh, uh, all the other members of the institution must uh, uh, contribute. Otherwise, uh, nothing uh, would be done. All right, here we go. Last two questions for you. Oh, did I get an echo? Um, number one, um, what did we not say about IAUP? Is there anything at all to you want to say? Any events coming up? Any, any thoughts at all? And number two, what do you see as the future of higher education? Well, number one, uh, IAUP, um, as I said uh, before, uh, meets uh, normally twice a year in different regions of the world. Our next meeting uh, will be this fall in, uh, in September, uh, at the end of September in Colombia, in University of Bucaramanga in Colombia. Um, and uh, then uh, next year, we'll be meeting in Egypt uh, in May, and uh, uh, in Japan in, in October. Uh, in uh, 2023, uh, sorry, 2024, uh, we'll have uh, our first meeting in, in England, in, in Nottingham, and our second meeting, which uh, will be in September, will be the triennial conference in China, probably in Beijing. So this is what we'll do uh, for the regional meetings. Of course, we'll be doing many other things. Uh, 
such as the leadership seminar that I mentioned uh, that we had in Mexico City. Uh, we will do uh, another one next year and the following year as well. And other initiatives such as uh, that I have just mentioned about students as well. Uh, so that's the first thing. And, and this, the, the, the second question, I think, was about the future of uh, higher ed. What do you see so, as the future of higher ed? Well, it's a small uh, question but, with five minutes to go. Well, it's very challenging. Uh, the future is challenging itself, uh, but it's also exciting uh, and, and full of promise. So I'm sure that there are thousands of universities in the world and there are millions of, of, of uh, faculty and, of course, more millions of students in the world. And it's uh, uh, for them uh, to develop a, a new future for the university. But I'm sure the university will adapt, as uh, it has always done uh, throughout history, to the new conditions, to the demands of society, and certainly for the university to be successful, uh, and let's say to survive, to 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 still be relevant for society, uh, will have to be a new university in the next 10, uh, 15 years. So I'm thinking uh, on the horizon of uh, 2040, basically. So in 20 years time, more or less. Well, there you have it, ladies and gents. Um, an incredible episode of the Edup Experience with uh, two very knowledgeable higher ed thought leaders and me. Uh, of course, as the third wheel here. I could have just let you guys talk the whole time. Um, there's a lot of insight in this episode. The reason why somebody like uh, Fernando Galvan coming on this podcast is so important is because the global perspective of higher ed is important for us. Global is a thing. We, we, the world is more interconnected than it ever has been before. We can't silo ourselves in our home countries. Uh, we have to get the broader perspective, which is why I'm so appreciative and honored that you came on today, sir. But before I let you go, I've got to bring back my co-host today. He is, of course, Dr. Vistasp Karbari, and he is Director of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. And he just got the drum roll. Vistasp, thanks for coming back. Well, thank you very much. And Dr. Galvan, thank you very much for your insight. This is very timely and a wonderful message for all of us. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Fernando Galvan, he is the Secretary General of the International Association of University Presidents. Fernando, it's been an honor, my friend. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Anthology is leading the next wave of edtech innovation and unlocking student success on an entirely new scale. Ready to take a closer look at what's next in the future of learning? Join fellow faculty and higher ed experts for Anthology Together, one of the world's largest education events, taking place next month at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin Resort in Orlando, Florida. Anthology Together features some of the most innovative professionals from the global education community sharing insights and best practices for institutional and learner success, both inside and outside of the classroom. Register today and attend tailored sessions on topics like creating more dynamic courses for your learners and strategic decision making across recruitment, admissions, and enrollment. The time is now. Visit www.anthology.com together and reserve your spot before the event kicks off on July 11th.